Welcome to Manifold. My guest today is Richard Lowry, a professor of finance at the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas, Austin. Richard received a PhD in economics from Carnegie Mellon University. He is an applied game theorist who works on banking, investment banking, real estate, and other topics. Richard was recently involved in an effort to create an independent unit within the University of Texas called the Liberty Institute, which would be dedicated to the study and teaching of individual liberty, limited government, private enterprise, and free markets. He and his team had received a $6 million allocation in the state budget to help fund this initiative and also had support from major donors to the university. However, the project did not reach fruition. And my understanding is Richard is no longer associated with the project. He has, in a sense, resigned under protest. I invited Richard onto the podcast for two reasons. One, to give us a general feeling about what is the situation on major university campuses across the country, such that the attempt to establish this kind of independent entity within the university is necessary today. And secondly, to give people who are, for example, political leaders who control or influence university budgets or major donors to universities, to give those people a sense of what is happening and how difficult it is to get the university to do what they want it to do or what is right. So having said that, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, let, let's start with just a little bit about yourself. So you're an economist at the business school. Yes, in the finance department within the business school. Yes. And so you're somebody who's, you know, although you're an academic, you think about the real world. You're the scientific analysis that you do is meant to actually represent how the real world works. That's the hope. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I just, I want to reassure our listeners, you know, some people might just want to discount your views. They might say, well, this guy was involved in some altercation with the university. And in my experience, the universities are reasonable. So he must be a right-wing crank. And so maybe you could just say a few words about your own political background and, you know, I'm guessing before this whole thing happened, you would have considered yourself kind of just like a mainstream professor. Is, is that fair? I would have considered myself mainstream within the country, but not mainstream within the faculty. So I was definitely relatively conservative compared to your average faculty member by a, a lot, but you know, I was, you know, Certainly not out going to Trump rallies or anything like that. But, right. Yeah. How about how about within your subunit within the business school? Would you say you're, you're pretty mainstream in your political belief? <laughs> we have a surprising number of socialists floating around in economics. So I, yeah, I've always been a little more sort of skeptical of government intervention, a little less pro-regulation than the norm. So I, I guess I'm kind of leaning in that direction more than more than most faculty, but. I never actually did anything that involved politics in any way or cared enough to, you know, show up to vote until 2020, I don't think so. 
I was definitely not politically active in any sense. Got it. Okay. I, th- I think that's good enough. And, and for my listeners, I think my listeners may have heard this before, but for new listeners to the podcast, I've always considered myself actually somewhat center left. So somewhat progressive on social issues, probably a little more sympathetic to business and free markets than most university professors, largely because I've been involved in technology startups for a long time. So, but I, I never considered myself a radical in any way. I considered myself pretty mainstream politically. Oh, oh and I, I, I'm an economist on social issues. I hadn't given it a, I hadn't given it any thought for uh, quite some time until all this happened. Like the whole, you know, I didn't have an opinion on things like abortion and things like that because it's, you know, it's not economic, so I don't care. So yeah, definitely like social issues weren't even on my radar until I started finding out what was going on in other parts of the university. Right. And so I, I think a common experience for professors like ourselves is this, as you, as you spend more time at the university and you broaden out away from your narrow research specialty, you start to see what other people are doing on campus. <laughs> and that can lead to a kind of radicalization because you realize that the university, you know, perhaps you might say, I, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but large chunks of the university are involved in to some extent, indoctrinating our students into a certain way of thinking, which may not even may not be representative at all of how the overall population of the country thinks. Well, I think large chunks might be an understatement. There's still, you know, a couple of engineering departments that haven't gone completely for the indoctrination. But like our astronomy department is now a social justice factory. So, you know, it's it's pretty extensive. And to your point, if I just like one of the first things that got me, you know, we started thinking about the, you know, what, what would, would, would we need to do to get to our, get our students better education? But one thing that really struck me was shortly after I got tenure, I got on the tenure appeals committee or the committee of council on academic freedom and response at some elaborate acronym, but its main purpose was to deal with tenure appeals cases. And one of the first ones I dealt with was, you know, there were these, you know, obviously very center left type academics and like linguistics and English who were we were dealing with this case and they had, they were like whispering about how the critical race theorists were driving everyone out of the departments and how the critical race theorists were, you know, purging all the white males from campus and from their departments. And I know, I didn't really know what they were talking about. And then I started looking into what, you know, what was going on in the college of liberal arts and how they would just fire people for not regurgitating the same kind of weird nonsense that I'd never seen before. And I guess, yeah, that, that was kind of my first step along the radicalization path was seeing that kind of this particular tenure case where they just fired this guy because he didn't do critical race theory in the, you know, Mexican American, Latino, Latina studies department. And so I was like, who are these people and why do they have zero tolerance for any idea that isn't exactly theirs? And that's kind of what got me going on it. And I'm guessing you were shocked to see that there could be places on campus, whole departments maybe, or subunits where a kind of ideological litmus test could be applied like that. Yeah. I mean, I would have always, you know, I had always assumed that often the like hinterlands of liberal arts, that if you tried to be a Republican, it was going to be harder for you than if you weren't. But what I did not, and what I had not realized was that you take a bunch of people that we would all consider in like the one percentile of the most left in the country. And if they're not far, you know, if, you, if you're in that one per, first percentile, 
and you're not, but you're not totally on board with the sort of social justice activism, if you're still trying to be an academic at all, as opposed to putting the interests of marginalized groups ahead of everything, doing all your research based on you know, proving that racism operates and all that, they're going to go after you, even if you're just a good, you know, Bernie Sanders voter, just like everyone else. If you're not completely narrowly focused on their ideas, they're going to try to get rid of you. And that was kind of like, oh, wow, these, you know, the people I thought of as being intolerant towards the other side are in fact being victimized because they're not intolerant enough of the other side. And that's where things started to look really bad. Right. So I, I think what I'll, maybe I'll put in the show notes, some links to, I believe these are surveys by an academic called Eric Kaufman in London, but among the people surveyed are American faculty. And, you know, maybe 30 years ago, already Republicans or people who were right of center were in the minority among university faculty, but that discrepancy has become much, much stronger over time. So that instead of being sort of, oh, he's the conservative in the department, uh, we just agree to disagree with him, but we're polite and we still go to cocktail parties together, <laughs> which, you know, was probably the situation when I was coming up as a professor, young professor. Now that person could be attacked by a kind of woke mob or people that we might call berserkers, people who are very, very strongly left and want to kind of re-engineer the whole university. Yeah, well, I mean, you could see what happened at Stanford when Scott Atlas and Jay Bhattacharya took contrarian positions on some issues around COVID. Uh, the entire Stanford Faculty Senate, I think there were maybe a handful of dissenting votes. The, the, the actual faculty bodies have gotten to the point where, where they're trying to suppress faculty speech. So, you know, it's, you know, uses her berserkers. There are these berserkers around who sort of stir up trouble and go after people. But at the end of the day, it's really the full mass of the faculty that are going to go after and purge anything that would be considered sort of conservative thought. And I don't know if this is just because they're so scared of the berserkers who also want to fire them if they don't toe the line, or if there's just really this, you know, is there really just this genuine hate for anyone who kind of deviates from this, this new party line that's developed, but you know, it's, it is the, you know, it's tough because you do have, you have these extremists and they, they lead the charge, but it, you know, that it, it's pretty much everyone who follows and, and sides with the extremists. So it, it, it's pretty far gone. So let's, let's put a little bookmark on that because later in the podcast, it would be great to return to this topic. Since you're a game theorist, mm -hmm. we could think about what the incentives look like for average faculty members. You know, you definitely have a population of berserkers. And then in my experience coming from STEM, coming from physics, you have a lot of people who are disturbed with what's happening, but they are, they have to be quiet because their main goal being on campus is to conduct their own research and teach their students. And they don't want to get mixed up in other things. So even if they disagree a lot, they just have to be quiet. Well, they choose to be quiet. They choose to be quiet. Yes. And we, I, we I have research to do myself and I, this certainly speaking out certainly hurts my career, but you know, it, it, it's a choice by a lot of people to stay quiet. And I, and I can't quite figure out if it's just because they, you know, do, do they just hate the conservatives more than they hate the berserkers or is it really just they're scared? And I, I haven't, I haven't figured out exactly where that line is drawn. Let's, let's come back to that because I would really like to flesh that out because obviously you were the population, you know, better is maybe 
business school, social science type people and, and the physical science people are the ones that I know better. So, yeah. but let's come back to that. But what I'd like to do now is, you know, I'd like to have a section of the podcast, which is really useful for two specific populations of people. One is people who are political leaders, like a state senator or a lieutenant governor who really wants to understand what is going on in our state funded, for example, state funded universities, and what can I do to push things back in a more sane direction? So that's one population. And the other would be major donors who potentially are going to give millions of dollars to universities and maybe want to make sure the university puts the money to good use rather than just taking mm -hmm. it and then doing what they want with it. So let's talk a little bit about the Liberty Institute and the specific things, more of the things that you saw on campus first that, that made you think this entity needed to be created and then what you wanted to create. Yeah, well, I, so I, I sort of hit one of the first things that, that got me thinking we needed some pretty radical change was that, that, you know, sitting on those tenure cases, but, you know, going back, starting even before I got tenure, I would you know, I would teach in a way that maybe I, I tried very hard not to bring political opinions into my class, but I think, you know, the, the sort of general tilt towards not excessive skepticism of market suggested to me, suggested to some of the students that I might be a little less on the left than some of the other faculty. And so people started confiding in me saying like, oh, I can't, you know, I wish we could have these conversations. And, you know, this was like even four or five years ago. People were conservative students were already sort of intimidated. There were some incidences where they were physically attacked. We had some smoke bombs that was later. And that just didn't seem like the environment we should have. And then, you know, after I got tenure and after my friend got promoted to full Carlos Carvalho, we started thinking, you know, what do we do about this? How can we help the environment? And that sort of led us to become, you know, this led to a policy center and that led to us kind of becoming a repository for information. And, you know, some things came to my attention through that, talking to people. So, I mean, one anecdote that I think is telling is we have these things called flag requirements. So they're extra requirements that classes that you have to collect eight flags for classes that can only be taken at UT. And they're things like cultural diversity in the US. So some direct woke flags, ethics, writing, things like that. And it was brought to my attention that someone had their ethics flag denied because they didn't have enough balance. And now this person had, you know, Adam Smith, but she also had a little a smattering of postmodern stuff. But apparently the ethics flag committee said your, your class about the ethics of capitalism is too unbalanced and we need more anti-capitalist stuff. And so I started looking into what counted as what, what did have an ethics flag and you know, there's a lot of really awful classes with ethics flags. And one of them I saw was the only requirement required text was something like some comic book called bitch planet, something or other, which struck me as slightly inappropriate. And the class was all about like Angela Davis's thought and how great Angela Davis was. And Angela Davis, if you don't know, was a terrorist or I'm sure you know, but if listeners don't know, she was an American terrorist who ended up getting a job or a left-wing American terrorist who got a job at a university once she got out of jail. So, you know, you have to have balance if you want to have, you know, Adam Smith, the theory of moral sentiments. But if you're going to have a whole class about how great Angela Davis is, it doesn't have to be balanced with anything. And so 
I was a little annoyed by this. I got myself on the ethics flag committee and then I got myself expelled from the ethics flag committee because the women's and gender studies class was applying and it was, you know, they're very explicit. This is an intersectional feminist class and no other ideas are allowed. Like, wait, aren't we supposed to have balance? And so I got kicked off the committee. So, yeah, and this is a faculty committee. This, you know, this was supposed to be monitoring these things. So we had that. We tried to offer some freshmen. We tried, we, we tried to offer a freshman seminar. So we, every student has to take one freshman seminar. And we came up with this idea, let's have like basic econ and stats. Like, how can you think about the world through economics and stats? And so we started going through all the uh, syllabuses for these freshman seminars. And it was striking. It was, you know, the, the, the like Angela Davis class was not an outlier. It, it was all, you know, oppression, all of that. And we started looking at requirements and the way you can get out of the math requirement at the university. You could take one of these oppression classes. I started talking to people, you know, a handful of other faculty and finding out, oh, 15 years ago, someone tried to offer some, you know, set up a college that would offer competing classes that weren't all about race, class, and gender. And the university shut them down and all of these things happened. So it was getting increasingly clear that you cannot offer sort of reasonable, balanced, thoughtful classes at the university and expect to have them count for requirements or do anything like that. And it just got, you know, the more we dug, the more syllabuses I looked at, the more I was shocked at what our students were learning. And it all sort of clicked because the students coming in in finance, they're juniors and seniors. And it was over time, it was increasingly clear they didn't have any of the normal foundation you would expect. You know, if you want to understand how American society works, they, they didn't have that. They had, you know, one of my colleagues, he jokes about this, but it wasn't a joke. His students describe one of their classes as for one of these cultural diversity things is, you know, you, all you had to know was Beyonce is good and Taylor Swift is bad and you could get a, an A. And then it turns out we have all these classes, you know, we have all these civics requirements and they're all being ignored and the classes are all taught from the critical race theory perspective or you test out of your civics requirement by answering C to all your questions. So these sorts of things, it's just like the, the more I looked, the more it was clear that the university was just not providing what the state thought it was getting as far as an education. So it was kind right. of long, probably, but that's, no, that's that was a great, yes, Richard, that, that was a great answer. That was exactly what I was looking for. Let me drill down a little bit further because again, I want people who have not been on campus for 10 or 20 years to get a sense of what it's really like. And, you know, obviously it could be the case that, oh, some radical conservatives are exaggerating about what's happening on campus, but let, let's be very specific. So these flag requirements, it sounds like these are required for every student in order to yep. graduate. Is that correct? Yes. And, and there, it sounds like they're reviewed. The, the actual courses that the student submits to satisfy the requirement have to be reviewed by I guess, is it a faculty committee or some administrative committee? It's a faculty committee, but there's a couple of administrators who manage the program and they're on the committees and they kind of run the meetings. So it's, you know, there, there's a, which should be a low level administrator who basically seems to set herself up to, to guide the conversation and you're not, we don't, we don't get to vote, but we, we reach a consensus in these committees and the consensus is pretty much whatever that administrator 
ultimately decides, I think. So there's a faculty committee and the faculty aren't great, but then ultimately there's these administrators who seem to be making the final calls. Got um, it. And is, is your claim that right now at this moment, so some freshman comes into the university of Texas and university of Texas, Austin here, and let's suppose they're like a typical Republican kid from rural Texas. You're saying that to satisfy this flag requirement, they're going to end up being forced to take some classes. You can tell me exactly how many credit hours we're talking about here, but those classes are going to be inevitably slanted very far left of center. Oh, yes. Well, two of the flag requirements are explicit, pretty explicit critical race theory requirements. There's cultural diversity in the U.S. and cultural diversity in the world or something like that. One of the ways your class can qualify for a cultural diversity in the U.S. flag is by having an activism project. So if you're not required to have an activism pro project, but it count, it makes it more likely you'll get your flag if you assign your students to go out and engage in activism. Um, and, and, and sorry to interrupt, but and to almost 100% accuracy, none of these allowed activism kind of requirements would be things that are pro the interests of, say, the right. Oh, it would always no. be pro the interest <laughs> of the left. Is that correct? I just want to, I want to yeah, be very no interested here. Yeah. No one would, I mean, maybe like I haven't audited every single syllabus, so maybe some cheeky conservative professor somewhere on campus somehow managed to slide through one of these, but I've never seen it. And I know pretty much every cheeky conservative on campus. So I'd be surprised if there was any that wasn't straight up. I mean, you can't get an English class that's not chock full of critical race theory at this point. So I'm almost certain you can't get a cultural diversity in the United States flag. And, and my experience was even the ethics flag, which should be pretty neutral. Was it, you know, the committee was pushing hard to only give the ethics flags to, you know, left-wing activist class. You could probably get away with a neutral class on ethics, but I think, but you know, you certainly weren't going to get a conservative class without having to fight for it. So at least two and probably far more of the flags require you to basically take an activism class. And that's almost always from my discussions with students, that's almost always going to mean you have to go along with what they're saying. You can't just study critical race theory. You have to believe critical race theory to get these credits as far as I can tell. Okay, let me let me take this hypothetical young lady who comes from Odessa, Texas, and her father and mother are Republicans, and maybe she's a Christian. And she ends mm -hmm. up in this class, which she has to take. She has to pass this class at UT, more than one class, I guess, at UT Austin in order to get her degree. Maybe her degree is in accounting, but she has to take these classes. And if she makes a kind of principled argument in these classes about the things she believes in, like maybe she's a Christian, maybe she's a Republican, maybe she believes in free markets, what is going to happen to her? Is she, is she going to be subject to abuse or social ostracism or at least made uncomfortable by the professor? What, what is the experience of the students who come to you about this? I would say at least ostracism and abuse and probably a pretty low grade. You know, it's hard to get the hard data on this stuff, but you know, from what we hear, yeah, you, you, you can't go into a critical race theorist's class or a feminist's 
class and argue that, hey, maybe the patriarchy isn't actually responsible for all the problems in the world, things like that. It's just not, it's just not feasible. And it may be hard for people that have been in the environment recently to realize that. But like, even in the business school, we have a ethics requirement in the business school and it's taught by someone who just is so extreme. Like you would, you wouldn't believe someone like this could be in the business school, but it's required. All the undergraduates have to take it. And I had a student who told me that even in this business school ethics class, he was assigned to debate about the Liberty Institute, the thing that we tried to build. And he was supposed to defend the Liberty Institute. And he was told by the professor, you know, he, he couldn't use any articles that I had written because they were too biased. So he had to find other sources. And I the, the only articles that are positive were ones that I wrote or got interviewed for. So I, he was not allowed to use me in this class. And then he started, he told me, he started his presentation by saying, well, I think we can all agree that the faculty at the University of Texas lean left and the professor stopped him and said he wasn't allowed to say that because it wasn't true or didn't seem to be true. So, you know, this is what's happening in an ethics class in the business school when we, we should be the most reasonable of the social science department. So I can only imagine what it's like to try to sit through this stuff in liberal arts. But yeah, apparently you, even to get a, even to get your business degree, not only do you have to toe the line in your liberal arts core classes, you've got to toe your, toe the line in the business school classes too. I mean, our Dean took down all the pictures from her office which he took over because there were too many white men. So, you know, that's the sort of environment we live in now. Would, would you say, would this be a fair statement? Uh, a significant fraction, you know, maybe at least 30% of the students entering UT Austin have to deliberately hide some of their core beliefs in, oh, yes. as they pass through these flag courses. Oh yes. I think that that's, that would definitely be a fair statement. And if you're a student leader of a conservative group, you have to hide your email address and where you live because we, we tried to coordinate with a, a couple of events with some of the conservative student organizations. And it was really hard because you can't just find the person who runs a conservative student organization on campus because they've been docked so badly that they have to keep everything so locked down. So yeah, and like if, if you want to be an outspoken conservative, you're going to be attacked. I mean, we had actual physical attacks on people who were out supporting Kavanaugh. They grabbed their hats and they ripped their signs. I witnessed somebody, you know, one of these, you know, they're small, like, I don't know if it's Young America, one of these small conservative organizations, some guy just came by and grabbed one of their phones while they were talking and threw it in the bushes and said, ha ha ha. And was like, you, and they got upset. He's like, oh, it's just a political view. There's sort of constant at least low-grade abuse. There were smoke bombs thrown into an anti-abortion event. I mean, we have to have armed security at certain of our talks. You know, the, we're basically it. Our policy center is pretty much it for bringing anything remotely outside of orthodoxy to campus. And we've got, you know, I, I've had very pleasant conversations with UTPD as they've like watched to make sure no one did anything to our speakers. But, you know, that is the environment. It, you know, just, just to clarify, when you said orthodoxy, again, for people who are off campus. Oh, right. That might actually. Not, yeah. yeah. What you what you mean by orthodoxy is very strongly left. Yes. Political and ideological views. So I, I started using the term extremist orthodoxy because it's these views that are so far out of the mainstream of 
America, but that are absolutely required on campus. Like if you believe, you know, I, I would say you know, that no white men should ever be hired as faculty at the university of Texas would be a fairly extreme position, but it is in effect what many departments use as their policy. In fact, I mean, we have one person, we have a six person tenure committee at the university level that reviews every tenure case. I, I think it was five, I believe it's expanded to six. Two of the six people on that committee are critical race theorists. One of them said in a semi-public forum at one point that he thought it was horrifying that there were any Republicans teaching at the University of Texas, and that was totally inappropriate. So we have a guy who reviews every single tenure case now who doesn't think conservative opinions should be allowed on campus and thinks everyone who has them should be fired. And this is like, I doubt he's even talking about the 50th percentile of America. This is probably you know, what counts as a conservative professor. So you know, if you don't think that affirmative action should be used for admissions or hiring, that puts you solidly in the mainstream of the US. That's solidly in the mainstream of California, but that's something that people who have very powerful positions at the University of Texas think you should get fired over. So it, it's pretty extreme. Yes. That's a, just for the listeners. That's a good example because both California and the state I live in, Michigan, there have passed through public referenda laws against discriminate. Well, not, I don't want to use the word discrimination, but use of race in hiring and university admissions. So it's, it's clearly the majority belief among average Californians and, Mich and Michiganders that affirmative action as it's practiced by most U.S. universities should not be practiced. It's actually technically illegal in California and Michigan. However, if you're a university professor on almost any campus in the United States and you say, oh, I agree with the outcome of that referendum in California or that referendum in Michigan, then that makes you a pariah as a faculty yeah. member on your own campus. Is that fair? Richard? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, in fact, we have, it turns out, you know, somebody leaked the diversity, equity, and inclusion policy before it was finalized. And as a result, there was a bit of an uproar and we don't have a mandatory diversity, equity, and inclusion statement yet, although most colleges do have it. But commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion has to be considered for all hiring and promotion at the University of Texas. And if you look through the policies, what this basically means is if you oppose affirmative action, if you oppose taking steps to increase the number of people from so-called marginalized groups in hiring and admissions, by policy, you're supposed to get be less likely to get promoted or less likely to get a job. If you do not teach in an inclusive manner, which means putting the interest of marginalized groups over the truth, you're supposed to be less likely to get promoted and less likely to get hired. So every single job at the university has a political test where you have to affirm beliefs that put you in the extreme of the country. So if you support the California proposition, which I think it was like 57% of Californians supported, you're supposed to, by the official policy approved by the president of the university and the chairman of the board of regents, you're supposed to be less likely to get a job at UT. And that's just, you know, and it's illegal too. So you're, you're, if you think they should follow the law, 
you're less likely to get a job. And that's where we've gone. When we discuss things like this, I'm always thinking to myself, if, you know, the state legislators in Texas or in Michigan knew, I mean, deeply understood the things that you're saying right now, they would probably try to pass laws that demand balance at their state universities. So there was an expression in the Soviet Union that people used, I think, initially, seriously, and then sarcastically, if only Stalin knew. Yes. If if only Stalin knew that Beria was out executing everyone, he'd put a stop to it. Now it turns out you open up the archives and Stalin was enthusiastically encouraging the murder of anyone who was remotely threatening to him. And I think we have a little bit of that problem here because state legislators, they, they, you know, in Texas, you have to look conservative. You have to look like you care about this stuff, but I I now know there's a lot of people who know what's going on and there's very little interest in changing it. And I think there's an awful lot of conservative politicians who don't think people care enough about these issues or higher education for it to matter. And so they'd rather just go along and get treated better at the cocktail parties and all of that. And even the ones who come off against the university, you know, trip over their words to say, oh no, but it's only a few radical professors and nobody wants to really come after the university. And I think they know what's going on. I think the issue is they don't think people know what's going on and they don't think people are going to be holding them accountable. And they really like their friends who are sitting on the board of regents running things and they know it's their friends. Ultimately, it's the University of Texas board of regents decided we're going to have a policy that the University of Texas is not going to hire conservatives. So these are people appointed by a Republican governor who decide you can't hire conservatives at UT Austin. And I don't think there's there's no way that these guys don't know what's happening. It's just that they don't care. And that's what I've sort of learned from dealing with them over a few years, which is, you know, I think people don't know what's going on and people don't know that when the Republican legislature votes billions of dollars to the University of Texas, that they're going to turn around and use that money to, for example, develop videos to train four-year-olds in critical race theory. I know that the Texas politicians are aware that the university was giving grants to the education school to develop critical race theory training materials for four-year-olds. The lieutenant governor even mentioned that in a press conference, but then they just keep writing the checks so that they know it's happening, but they just keep funding everything. They don't ask for any oversight. They, you know, they love the president, even though he appoints critical race theorists to every position of power. So I, I don't think it's ignorance of the politicians as much as they, they just don't care. Okay. Let's, let's come back to this particular point a little bit later in the podcast. Cause I, I think this is really interesting what you're saying, but, but look, I want, I want to actually go back to the narrative part of it where we go back to what happened at Texas with the Liberty Institute. So maybe we mm-hmm. could, could start there. Sure. So you and your colleague, Carlos. Yes. Carvalho see this problem. Students mm-hmm. are coming to you, maybe who have a slightly conservative background, and they're complaining to you about what's going on on campus. Mm-hmm. And, and you see that 
for example, with the exception of yourselves, nobody's inviting speakers with more diverse ideological views to campus. And mm -hmm. so you decide that the university needs some kind of somewhat independent entity within the university, which has more of a pro free markets, pro freedom of ideas orientation. So may maybe just start, start there. Yeah. I mean, so we, we were doing what we could with this little policy center, but it's just a small, you know, this, and so this is something important for donors and any politicians who happen to actually care to understand. What'll happen is people, you know, universities will get bad press about how hostile they are to conservatives and they'll set up little centers and the centers will look like potentially useful things, but they won't have the authority to hire tenure track faculty. They won't have the authority to offer classes. So all we could do was bring in speakers and this was obviously not enough, but we didn't have any, any tools. So we, we were, we existed at the pleasure of the president of the university because we were useful to him as something to point out when conservative donors complained, oh, no, no, look, we had, uh, Alex Epstein, the fossil fuel guys. Oh, look, we have all sorts of interesting, you know, all these conservative, but all we could do was one-off talks when we were able to beg and plead with the finance department, maybe here and there, and the central administration to offer a class or two through a department, but we couldn't really do anything. And this is a little frustrating. Yeah. And me, then let me just interrupt to just emphasize your point to the listeners. Power at the university is either in the central administration where they control the resources or it's in tenure lines. That means positions which are permanent faculty that ostensibly can't be fired, although you know, they can be attacked and fired. We, we've discovered, like, if you look at what happened at Princeton recently, but, but and they can be driven to suicide. If you look at what happened to Mike Adams, but anyway, yes. that's the other way to get rid of tenured faculty. But um, in general, in general, tenured full-time positions at the university are the coin of the realm. And so if a university president wants to appease conservative legislators or donors, they can have a little institute that occasionally does invite some diverse points of view on campus, but doesn't have the power to create professorships for people who hold those more diverse views. And so that was the situation that they were attempting to per persist in, 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 in having at the, at UT. Is that fair? Yeah. And what's weird and I think hard for outsiders to understand is it, it can be a pretty good gig to be the fake conservative on campus. Because you can get a lot of resources for your own fun, for your own dinners. You can have your friends out. You can have a whole center. You can get promoted and, and they'll just, they'll throw money at you and they'll put you in front of rich conservatives and they'll give you a bunch of money and then you can go and make a name for yourself as long as you agree to just kind of go along with the university. You'll, you'll notice these people, you know, at these centers... It, it, when, when the chips are really down, they're always going to side with the university president. They're always going to end up siding with the left when it really matters. They'll be the dissenters when it doesn't matter. They'll bring in the speakers when it doesn't matter. But when you, when it comes down to Josh Katz getting fired at Princeton, well, yeah, that was mostly okay. Uh, maybe they broke the rules a little bit, but you know, the, the professional, you know, 
conservative beards at Princeton, they're not going to fight the president of Princeton. They're going to provide him cover. And that's how most of this, most of these things work. And that was why we had what we had. That was what we were supposed to be doing. And in, um, in other contexts, people might refer to this as fake or controlled opposition. Yeah. I mean, I, I, if you look up the, I, I never remember the name, but there was a party in East Germany. Uh, that was its whole role was to pretend to be an opposition party. So that's pretty much what you have. I'd say probably 90% of what I see on campuses as far as conservative stuff fits into that category. And so the, the thing that the university sort of made a mistake on is, well, they do, you know, first they, they didn't know that Carlos was going to loop me in quite as much as he did on this stuff. And so. They also didn't anticipate that Carlos was not actually interested in playing the get bribed to be official opposition game. He was much more committed to actually make a difference. And so, but we couldn't figure out how to do this. And then we happened to have a meeting coming up. Uh, I wasn't supposed to be at the meeting or anything because I was sort of always kind of kept in the background on all this stuff. But there was going to be a meeting between Carlos and some of the donors. And we had recently passed that the university had recently adopted a recommended land acknowledgement that we're supposed to start all public events in the first day of class with. They can't, the, the, they would have loved to have required it, but we're in the Fifth Circuit and that would have been slapped down as a violation of free speech at a public university. But we were recommended to start everything with this land acknowledgement about how we're truly on Turtle Island and, uh, which is the Native American, you know, somebody claims that's the Native American term for North America and to make these obsequious statements about all the uh, tribes, including the Comanche, who, if you know anything about the Comanche, were basically the American equivalent of step raiders. They didn't really have a you know, permanent settlement, but anyway, we were supposed to do this land acknowledgement about how really implying that the U S government and the state of Texas was illegitimate and we should. And so I kind of talked Carlos into starting his meeting with our donors for our dissenting policy center with the new university land acknowledgement. And then it turned out the president showed up for that meeting just after it, the land acknowledgement was read. So he got an earful of very upset alumni trying to figure out what on earth was going on. Why are we starting meetings with these sort of far left statements? And that kind of led to some pressure on us to do more, which was great because that's what we wanted to do all along. And this sort of started snowballing and that's where we're like, okay, as soon as anyone's like, oh guys, you need to do more. We're like, okay, we know exactly what we need. We need an independent unit with tenure track faculty. They can offer classes, they can offer a degree, they can provide options for that conservative student who may be a Christian. Neither of us are particularly religious, but you know, <laughs> that, that typical student from Odessa you talked about, who can come in and say, take a good class instead of a terrible class, but we need a faculty that will be answerable to themselves, a high quality faculty answerable to themselves, but who don't have to follow, who don't have to go along with the woke, uh, as they say these days, faculty, which was basically we, we needed either a college or a department with the ability to offer degrees and to make those crucial tenure track hiring decisions. And so we wrote up a proposal. I think the president was very unhappy that we wrote this proposal and we got it to some 
people who got really excited about it and passed it on to the state. And we're like, oh, we should really do this. And a lot of people got increasingly excited and the president had to pretend like he was excited about it. And the president and the chairman of the board of regents worked with the lieutenant governor to hammer out the details. And it was just, it went, you know, went really quickly because it was such a good idea. It was exactly what the university needed. And then the budget, they ended up adding the money for it to the budget. They wouldn't put it in a separate bill because that would have been, you know, there would have been hearings and nobody wanted all that trouble. And all along, the president and the board of regents were playing along, acting like they were supportive. There was a document outlining what this would look like, that there would be an independent faculty unit with tenure track hiring. We were going to offer a degree. The state wanted us to do a bunch of outreach to high school students, which is great and important. We didn't know how we were going to do it, but fine. If you want, want us to, we'll, we'll do our best. So the state was adding things. The university was acting all excited. It got in the budget, it passed, and then radio silence. We didn't hear a thing for months. We sent, you know, here's Carlos, because I, I have to, kind of, again, I have to kind of hide in the shadows for reasons that may be becoming clearer and clearer. Carlos sends a proposal for, you know, eight to 10 faculty who could help put this together. We don't hear anything back from that. It turns out for like four or five, six months, the president of the university has a critical race theorist, Richard Flores, coming up with an alternative plan that wouldn't allow independent faculty hiring. And then somebody planted an article in the Texas Tribune about how these, you know, oil guys from West Texas were trying to take over the University of Texas. We weren't even mentioned as, you know, we, we were just kind of cogs, but it was, you know, this was some idea being imposed by the evil Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor of Texas and his oil friends. And then as soon as that article hit, that was what the president used to come back to Carlos and to the donors and say, nope, look how upset everyone is about this. You can't have independent hiring. You can just take this money and give it to existing departments to hire people they want to hire anyway. But of course, you'll get to decide whether they get that money but for that particular hire, but you don't get to do any hiring. You don't get to offer any degrees, nothing that was agreed to with the state. And this was all lined up. You know, they were just waiting with this alternative plan that the critical race theorist had come up with for when that article dropped. And it was, you know, it's remarkable that the process of bringing intellectual diversity and dissenting ideas to the University of Texas was put in the hands of a critical race theorist who is opposed to the idea of having any of those ideas on campus. And this is one of these cases where, you know, the, the fact that people don't get how universities operate, somehow the president was able to smooth this over with some of the outsiders and with the state and everyone, you know, this was obvious. It was a complete default. This was going to be completely useless. It was just going to be another controlled opposition thing in ways that were very obvious to us. People who were clearly hostile to this were put in charge of developing it. But the outcome was the president said, okay, and if in order for this to work, the people who were involved from the beginning have to be completely excluded. So we were banned from being involved at all. Not only did the president got the board of the chairman of the board of regents to ban us from involvement and told the donors that nothing would happen if we were involved at all. And so it turned out most of the donors were sort of shrugged, like, oh, okay, well, I guess Carlos isn't that important. And I don't barely know who Richard is. So sure, we'll, we'll trust Richard Flores, the critical race theorist to help set this up. 
and these sort of outside controlled opposition guys that get brought in from Ivy League schools to cheerlead the president's plan. And then, you know, we were sitting there like, you don't understand. This is nothing. They just could not understand that it was a complete default and a complete failure. And so we got, you know, completely kicked out. And then the state decided not to do anything. It was obvious they had defaulted on what they promised the state, but I guess the state has good relationships with the regents. So they're like, all right, well, we'll just let them do it their way. And then turns out we, you know, we have this controlled opposition on campus already. And one of the people who runs a fake conservative center at UT, uh, he had a friend who ran a fake conservative center at the University of Missouri. And so they went and they found this guy and the president basically convinced the government department to give this guy tenure in exchange for him coming in and running it in the way that the critical race theorist wants it run, where he's just going to take the money and give it to existing departments. And that's, you know, and so what we've basically done is we got 6 million extra dollars from taxpayers to be spent. However, the sociology department or the anthropology department want to spend it on whatever faculty they can convince this guy to, to pay for. So we've inadvertently participated in defrauding the state of Texas, the taxpayers of Texas out of $6 million. And if they're not, you know, if the state decides to keep going along with it, it's going to be even more over the years. And it's, yeah, it, it really kind of bothers me. I didn't want to be any part of anything like that. Now, this is uh, getting into the weeds a little bit, but in the way that it's finally turned out, does this director, I know you don't like this director that they brought in from Missouri, but if he were a stand-up guy, does he have veto power over, let's suppose the sociologist wanted to use these funds to hire some guy and you didn't think this person actually did represent a diversification of thought on campus. You could just say, no, I veto that guy. I'm not supplying the funds for that position. Is that still within the remit of the uh, director? Yeah. That's sort of, that's what he would say, but that's not written down as far as I know. So, you know, nothing's been, you know, nothing's been formalized. They've just sort of brought him in and, you know, he did come in with the agreement to play along. So I can't imagine he's going to take a stand. The legislative language was here's $6 million for the Liberty Institute and they've changed mm -hmm. the name. And so really it's, everything is totally at the discretion of the president. Because that's how, the, I mean, the university is set up. People think of the university as kind of, you know, oh, there's the faculty senate, there's these bodies, but really it's a dictatorship. And the, you know, if, if the money goes to the university, the money goes to the president. And so the president can do whatever he wants with this money. There's no strings attached because it wasn't, it was legislative as part of a budget and that's entirely at his discretion. So maybe he'll let this guy decide whether or not to, fund the stuff, but ultimately there's no protection at all because it's just the president's money. But the president could go around and pretend that it isn't. You know, that, that's another, like the president could hire people with the money directly without going through the department, but he's promised the faculty not to, and he can say to the outsiders, oh no, we can't hire that guy because the faculty don't want it. But if he wants to hire some DEI guy, he could do that and the faculty won't care. And he could you know, he has every ability to set up departments. He has every ability to set up colleges. If he wanted to spend the money in the right way, he could do it, but there's nothing that's holding him to do that. 
And is is the six million dollars that was appropriated? Is that recurring money or is that a one time slug so of six million dollars? The way it works in Texas is that everything is two years, so it's three million dollars per year for each budget because the t- legislature only meets every two years. So the idea was this would become recurring money. So, mm-hmm. but there's no such thing as recurring money pretty much anywhere in the Texas budget. Everything gets re-upped after two years. So if people wanted to stand up and say, no, you can't, you know, you can't default on us like this, they could end it in the next legislative session and just take out the line item. And, you know, if the university wants to fund fake conservative opposition, it can do that out of the general budget. You know, it can take money away from sociology. It doesn't need extra money. But the plan was this would be like, and when it got in the budget, it got in the budget as part of the stuff that's sort of implicitly recurring. And that's the money you can use for tenure track lines. There's another way that donors screw up is they'll write a check to the university saying, hey, we need more intellectual diversity. Here's a check for $5 million, produce some intellectual diversity. And then the president can say, oh, well, I can't hire, that's not recurring money. So I can't hire tenure track faculty with that. So here's a couple of lecturers who look really great to you, even though you don't, even though they won't have any influence whatsoever. But that's one of the excuses they use not to hire faculty with donor money. So that was really the key was this sort of quasi recurring money from the state is what allows you to fund tenure lines. That's why it's so bad that that money was expropriated by the president for his own purposes. Right. I, I, you know, I think maybe we could start segueing in this direction. I, I think it's quite hard for donors. Let's suppose you were a billionaire and you wanted to give, you know, substantial amount of money to your alma mater, but you wanted it to say, you wanted to create a professorship that studies free enterprise or is, you know, pro business or something. It's very tough for you to ensure that, that, you know, say you even give it in the form of endowment or something. You, <laughs> It's very tough for you to ensure that the university will actually use the funds in the way that you want them to. You, you end up having to write a legal contract with them, and then you have to depend on your heirs or your estate to try to enforce that contract. And it's quite difficult. Yeah. And to, they, and, and nobody, you know, they want the money, but they don't want to actually hire anyone who disagrees. I think, you know, it, I don't know if you're, there was, a, I think it was $20 million gift to Yale along the sort of free enterprise American institutions thing. And so the president took the $20 million and then immediately turned around and hired a left-wing activist to run it. And she started using the money to fund classes for promoting left-wing activism. And the people, the person who gave the money got upset. And then it was immediately like, how dare you interfere with the academic freedom of Yale? How dare you taint us by saying we shouldn't be using our money in this way? And it's not like they had hired some neutral person. They took the money and hired an activist who was using the money for the exact opposite. And, you know, part of it is it's really hard to write these contracts. I think there was one at Mizzou that was written cleanly enough that he was able to claw back half of it and send it off to Hillsdale. And that's actually the only trick you can do. Like the only people who will actually fight, if, if you say, if you don't follow through on this contract, this money goes to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will actually go after the university. That's the only thing I've seen that works. Otherwise, you're out of luck. You write this check and you're trusting the president of the university. And the problem is the president of the university is always a bad guy because there's no way in the current environment to get to a position where you look like a reasonable candidate for a presidency of a university without 
being well known as someone who gives everything to the activist left. You'll never get to be department chair. You'll never get to be dean. You'll never get to be provost because all those searches have DEI components and all the search firms filter out anyone who doesn't toe the line on DEI and all of that. So every single president of every university, with the possible exception of Mitch Daniels, is someone who has gotten where he is by always doing what the the activist left wants. So every time you write a $20 million check to an Ivy League school, you're handing money to somebody who is going to use it to appease the far left. And so Richard, just to reinforce what you're saying, so as somebody who did have a pretty senior level position at a Big Ten university, I would say your characterization is accurate at the 95% level. So in other words, there are a few people in there who still have some integrity. Yeah, I'm trying to make a list. It's pretty short so far. Yeah, it's it's quite short. And 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 the other thing is that people who secretly have integrity have to hide it. Otherwise, they're going to be a target of the, you know, the the woke mobs. So I just want to say descriptively, I think what you're saying is correct. So for people who are potential donors or people who have governmental authority over institutions of higher education, this is an accurate picture of how dynamics works at these institutions. And even if the president goes to your country club and says all the right things at the country club, and even if he sends the kids to all the right schools, and even if he plays tennis with you, at the end of the day, he got where he was by being good at giving the campus left everything they want while looking to outsiders like a reasonable person. Yes. Uh, I mean, the way a, a very shorthand way to say this is that but at that level, these people are all politicians. Mm-hmm. They may present themselves as scholar leaders of institutions that mm-hmm. pursue truth. But in fact, in order to reach that level, they are indeed simply politicians. And crucially, they understand that the faculty pay more attention and the faculty understand how the university works. The politicians, the donors, the alumni don't pay that much attention and don't understand how it works. So even their sort of purely self-interested calculation, they're always going to do symbolic things for the outsiders, the alumni, the donors, the politicians, and they're going to do stuff that really matters for the faculty. So for example, our president saved the school song because they accused, you know, there was a movement accusing the school song of being racist because it might've been sung at something where somebody else did something. It was completely ridiculous, but the president made a big deal about saving that, that song. But then he turns around and appoints critical race theorists to every possible position where he can find them, except maybe the provost is an engineer, but she's definitely going along with this stuff. But, you know, and alumni all think it's really important that he didn't get rid of the school song. And they have no idea what it means that two out of five members of the tenure committee at the university are critical race theorists. They have no idea. That's what really matters. And that's why the faculty tolerate him because, oh, sure, he had to, he couldn't cancel the school song because the alumni would have gotten too upset, but at least he lets us, you know, decide who gets promoted. So it's always going to be the symbolic stuff to the outside and the stuff that really matters to the kind of extremist orthodoxy. And I can't think of any school, again, except maybe Purdue, and then obviously Hillsdale, but that's a whole different thing. 
I can't think of anywhere where that, that pattern doesn't take place. Well, I would, I would say I, I personally know, you know, having been at a, you know, in a senior leadership position, I know a lot of university presidents around the country and there are some who are secretly on your side, Richard, but they have to do it in secret. Yeah. Well, that's part of the problem is, you know, how, how do you find out that the, the, the people who look like the, the people you're going to pick, like our president is the guy who goes around and, you know, hobnobs at the right country clubs. I mean, this is literally true. I think this is how he got the job, but he's, he's not sort of secretly working against the system. He's obviously working for the system. While being I don't know how you track down the guy who's secretly undermining DEI and critical race theory on campus. I, I don't even know. Well, let me, so th this is, this is, maybe we can take up one of the bookmarks from earlier in the conversation. So let me give you the STEM guy's view on all this. Okay. So if you're a STEM guy and, and you're there on campus and you think, well, the most important thing actually is that I actually figure out how to build a working quantum computer because, you know, the, 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 the payoff to society, to human civilization from that just outweighs all this internecine squabbling on campus. So I want to just focus on what's happening in the lab, right? Or maybe I'm an administrator. I have a background in engineering or physical science, and now I'm a dean or a vice president for research. And my main goal is to protect the real scientific, technical, medical research that's happening on campus. And in order to do that, I have to nod my head when the DI guy or the VP for diversity makes his or her speech at the, at the top leadership meeting. So I have to kind of go along with it. I may have some qualms about it, but I'm kind of going to go along with it because the number one thing I need to make sure is that we get the money in there to hire the top scientists and keep the labs working and pay the graduate fellowship. So there's a whole population of STEM people that are kind of like that. They're not very comfortable with what has happened in the last 20 years in the university, but they've basically made a kind of pact where they're going to go along with this and fight the battles that they can fight. But mainly their goal is just to keep this scientific research enterprise going on the campus. Because in the United States of America, almost all cutting edge research is done at universities. That's just how our system is set up. And so there are a bunch of people who just want to protect that investment in the future. And they don't feel like they can fight and win these, uh, these battles with the woke movement. And they just content themselves with trying to protect the scientific enterprise. And I think they're making a terrible mistake because what is happening is every student that's going to go through that science process and every student that's going to end up mattering in any way is now going to be selected through a DEI process. So we, we use our universities for two things. One is this, the science component you were talking about. And the other is this coordination device to decide who gets to run society. And the way when these STEM people have decided to narrowly focus only on, let's keep that science engine running and let's not worry about what's going on over here. What's ending up happening is you've handed control to the craziest, like half a percent of the American population gets to decide who gets to be in the elite. So now I end up having to fight to keep the SAT used and, oh yeah, and that's the one where the computer scientist will jump in, but you know, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, they can have all those, we don't care about those humanities anyway. We, they can do all the critical race theorists theory they want. And then all of a sudden, what do you do? With, what are you going to be doing with this quantum computer that your STEM people are building? Well, you're going to be using that 
to keep the social credit score to make sure that the right set of people get jobs they want. You know, if you look at what's happening in AI, there's this like fairness AI where all this intelligence is being used in order to, to figure out how to twist algorithms to give the correct political outcome. So I don't want a quantum computer in the hands of an elite trained by the woke crazies on campus any more than I would want the atomic bomb in the hands of the Germans in the 1930s and 40s. So you narrowly, you can't neglect the rest of the university to say, oh, great, we'll get medical advances. But then the AMA says we should make sure we have medical equity. So we are going to discriminate against patients on the basis of race for treatments. I mean, they, you, you read the stuff that's coming out of these scientific organizations now, especially the medical ones, it's crazy. And you know, it's not enough just to keep the technology going. We need to make sure the people who decide what to do with that technology aren't part of an insane cult. And right now, the other half of the university is just making sure that the only people who can get certified are people who go along with the insane cult. So I think it's time for the STEM people to step up and be like, no, no, you know, we're the only sensible ones left on campus. Everyone else has been purged and they need to fight for the rest of the university, not just STEM. Astronomy has fallen at the University of Texas. Uh, an astronomy professor wrote a paper and a book about how you could predict future career success in astronomy based on the initial few years of your career as a way of like figuring out where resources maybe should flow. What's a, what's a fairer way to figure out where grant money should go compared to just like, I like that guy. And he had to withdraw his paper and he had to withdraw his book because his algorithm, they didn't even see what his algorithm would say, but there was a possibility that the algorithm wouldn't say we need to spend more money promoting the interests of marginalized people within astronomy. So astronomy has fallen at UT and it's coming for the rest of you and you don't have much time. And there are a few of us trying to hold the line to protect you, but you know, you're not helping by just ignoring everything else that's going on at the university and letting it get taken over by the worst elements. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. It's reached a tipping point now where I, I really feel like the STEM faculty, but unfortunately it might be too late. So I think the situation now is that the, you know, a pretty big, I don't know if it's a silent majority, but it's definitely a large silent population of older STEM people really are very uncomfortable with what's happened at the university. I'm afraid that a lot of the younger ones are actually woke because they've yep. been filtered in such a way that, yep. uh, I mean, the, the, the universities have been, you know, it's like, I mean, the way I think about it is if you want the training to be good at STEM in the United States, then one of the costs of that training is you have to spend four years in a residential cult where you learn the craziest things imaginable. So if you want to get through MIT now, you have to regurgitate this nonsense and it's way easier to just believe the nonsense and get back to work than it is to have that internal conflict of MSA. And, you know, and these STEM guys, they went along with everything. They went along with bringing in unqualified people so that they could have departments that looked more appealing to leftists. Because most, most of the STEM guys are kind of, they don't think much about politics, but when they do, they view themselves as sort of center-left, good, you know, good liberals. And they went along with bringing in unqualified people and that, that's a lot of what happened with astronomy. And if you look at epidemiology, my goodness, they, they were totally okay bringing in people who had no idea what they were doing there. And it is too late. I mean, I think 
it's too late for STEM to fix itself. It's going to have to be a much, a much more extreme outside intervention, but I don't know that it's even possible now. I don't know that the personnel exists because, you know, everybody went along with the purging of everyone who had sensible ideas, either because they really didn't like those ideas or because they didn't want to get distracted from their work. So I think we're pretty much, you know, I think we've pretty much ruined everything. So what, uh, let, let's, let's switch gears and, and maybe talk about what is possible in the future. So, you know, it could be that in this coming midterm election or maybe the next presidential election that, you know, the right becomes ascendant in American politics, you know, at least temporarily, is there anything realistic that they can do to help fix the universities in that scenario? So I think, and I have you know, friends who don't particularly like this assessment, but I think private universities are lost. I don't think there's any hope of recovering private universities in any way that will actually be, you know, they'll continue to exist. They'll continue to certify things, but they're always, I, I don't think any private university will ever again produce net social value for a little bit longer. You'll get some science and some engineering out of them. But as far as the effect on society, they're, they're just gone because there's no mechanism to force trustees of private universities to kind of fix anything. And the faculty are all, almost all terrible. I mean, they're, they're I mean, you, you probably have more sympathy for some of these people than I do, but you know, I'd say there are literally eight people at Princeton worth anything because when Josh Katz got destroyed. Only eight people would publicly stand up. So we're talking about Princeton, one of the most elite universities in the country. There are eight faculty who are worth even talking to at this point about, you know, social issues and all of that. So I don't think there's anything that can be done on the margin. What should you do? Well, you should stop giving these, you know, if you have a history of violating civil rights laws and engaging in illegal discrimination, which all of these universities have, you know, if a Republican is president. Nobody at any of those universities should ever get an NSF grant again. So that's one thing you could do. And what does that mean? That means there's a lot of NSF money sloshing around for potential startups. So that's the only thing I can think of on private universities. Just don't give them any more money from the government. No student loans, no NSF grants. Those STEM faculty who still have some ability to be productive but didn't stand up and do the right thing, well, they're going to have to go and scramble and build institutions to get their NSF grants. But in the long run, that could be better because 50% of NSF grants are taken for overhead, which is just money spent by the university on, you know, at best waste and at worst, you know, subsidizing the critical studies departments. State universities are different. State universities can turn on a dime if the political will is there. So if the Department of Education is not actively opposing reform, which is what they would do now, but if the right got control of the Department of Education, they could say, all right, we're not going to require accreditation for student loans anymore. What does that mean? That means that state universities can start changing the way they do things. Because right now, if you have any reform at a state university, the accreditation bodies are going to try to take away your accreditation. They, they don't even bother coming up with good stories. They're just going to do that. But if the Department of Education said, we're not listening 
we're not delegating our authority to these private accreditation bodies that have been captured by political enemies. We're just going to make our own judgments. And then any state that wanted to could solve the problem of their state university in one fell swoop. And all that matters is leadership. Because the way state universities are set up is they're basically dictatorships. The president has almost total control over everything. And so the moment a state university puts a good president in, he can fix everything. Now, you can't go and back to the well and find some person who's been a provost or something. You have to get creative, find someone new, bring them in and support them. Because what happens every time you get a reformer at a state university, the faculty go crazy and scream. And then the board of regents of that state, whose only interest is sort of keeping things quiet, fires the president. That's more or less what happened in Oklahoma. And that's the story our president keeps telling. It's like, oh no, I can't do anything against the extremist takeover of the university or I'll get a vote of no confidence from the faculty council. He literally said that, which means nothing. So if you were to replace the presidents and you were to give them a mission, clear out this stuff, close all these departments, you know, redo requirements from the ground up, all this can happen with a small number of personnel changes. That's really all it takes because of the sort of hierarchical nature of state universities. But I've, I, I just haven't seen anyone willing to do that. Yeah, I have to say I'm not as, I'm not optimistic that that will happen. Even in states like Florida and maybe, you know, I would have said Texas, there's a shot there because, you know, it's a, it's a red state. But it, it just seemed unlikely that someone with that much willpower and that much focus on universities yeah. as being a high priority. No, I will say, uh, I, don't, I don't think it will happen. I think there are all the state universities are doomed too. It's just, it could happen. There's nothing yes. stopping that except a lack of political will. Yes, I, I agree that, yes, much more is possible than, you know, I, I think people can imagine, but I, I just don't think it's going to happen. I mean, for, you know, an exa- a little anecdote, in the entire time I've been in Texas, there's been one good member of the Board of Regents, and this was Wallace Hall. And he was looking into all sorts of things, but he was looking into admissions corruption, which turned out to be there was a lot of admissions corruption. You would basically get a, someone to write a letter and you'd automatically get into UT if you had the right political connections. And he started looking into this, and the result was... He was impeached from his job on the Board of Regents and indicted by the county attorney of the county that the University of Texas lays in. And the, you know, the conservative establishment of Texas did absolutely nothing to back him up. So the one real reformer we ever had just was completely abandoned by the state. By the way, if you're looking for a good university president, if someone can find Wallace Hall, He'd be ideal. Yeah, I hope, I hope the, the, the county didn't lock him up. No, yeah, they, they were not able to convict him of the nonsense <laughs> charge of, I can't even remember what it was like. I can't even remember what they called it because it was just all he did was put in public information requests for information about admissions. He was a member of the Board of Regents and he used the Texas state law that makes things public information. And not only did they impeach him, they managed to indict him over like there's literally a website you go in and say i want richard lowry's emails from june 15th to eight to july 15th of 2020 about the liberty institute and they have to give it to you and that's all he did he put in some public information requests and they indicted him it's insane yeah and then the you know and then they when 
they didn't reappoint him. You know, he was considered a troublemaker, so he didn't get reappointed to the board by our current governor and the people they do have there now. They go along with the DEI. They go along with the critical race theory stuff. They're just playing along. But you could find six serious Texans to run the board of regents, but we just we just don't. And Florida, I mean, if you look at what happened to Charles Negi at the University of Central Florida, even Florida, the university presidents are really out there, far, far left activists driving conservatives off of campus. And even, you know, DeSantis can't do anything about it. So, or won't, I'm not sure why. So I, I hate to end our discussion on a pessimistic note, but would you say it's fair as a characterization of the present and maybe the immediate future that in a culture war that the United States is locked into, the institutions of higher learning are more or less captured by one side entirely? Entirely, yes. Yeah. So that's my view. That's my view as well. And then sadly, my, my own people, the STEM researchers, just happen to be innocent hostages stuck in, you know stuck in these institutions that have been so captured. Yeah. And I, uh, I think, you know, we, we, maybe we don't want to end on a pessimistic note, but you know, the most optimistic scenario I can think of is something like a V-shaped dark age. Like things are going to get, you know, it, it took a long time to recover the knowledge of ancient Greece and ancient Rome because it was very hard to get in, you know, information transmitted, but maybe the internet will survive and we'll be able to sort of pull ourselves out of this after only a few decades of you know, societal collapse. But you know, that, that's about as optimistic as I can get. Yeah, on, on that, I'm a little more optimistic maybe than what you just described, because despite what's going on in the US and other parts of the West, Asia is actually storming ahead in science and engineering. So it's not like that knowledge is gonna be lost to the human species. It's just that you know, the, the innovation future for maybe the United States is not so great, but but other places are going to keep the torch of scientific research alive for sure. I hope you're right. <laughs>